Welcome to this BMJ podcast with me, Navjot Lada, Analysis Editor at the BMJ. Last week, we heard about high-integrity healthcare, a name for health systems that are designed around what patients actually want and need in order to be able to become fully engaged with their healthcare decisions. In this podcast, we're discussing an analysis article on bmj.com that describes how child and youth mental health services can apply the principles of high-integrity health. I'm joined on the line now by two of the authors, Miranda Wolpert and Amy Feltham, and also Claire Rowland, who works in an initiative in Birmingham that also embodies these principles. Hi all, I'm going to start by asking you all to introduce yourself. Miranda? Yes, so I'm Miranda Wolpert and I'm a clinical psychologist by background, now Professor of Evidence-Based Practice at UCL. Excellent, thank you. And Amy? Um, I'm Amy Felton, I work at Common Room. Um, Common Room is a consultancy that works with people with long-term health conditions, disabilities um, or who use social care services. Um, we all have experience of using them ourselves and we deliver training, promote collaborative practice in whatever way we can. Great. And Claire? I'm Claire Rowland. Um, I work at PAUSE, which is a new drop-in service in Birmingham. Um, and it was referenced in the article um, because I believe it's kind of addressing some of the issues. And what we do is we use kind of a multidisciplinary team. So we're moving away from the idea that um, mental health support can only be provided by um, you know, by clinicians and by um, professionals who have been trained in that background. Um, so hopefully I might be able to, to add from that perspective. Great, thank you. Miranda, perhaps I can ask you, can you give us a, a brief explanation of what high integrity healthcare is and particularly what it means in the context of, of child and mental health? Sure. So um, high integrity healthcare to me is, is an interesting initiative in that it's trying to pull together some, uh, I guess, um, challenging concepts that well, they're challenging in that they challenge received wisdom and in particular there are sort of three aspects to it the first is that more services don't guarantee more health uh, the second is that clinical evidence is not enough to determine what should be provided and the third is that um, really that promotion of health and delivery of health care is not confined just to health professionals and those are quite challenging of, of current preconceptions about ways forward for health care generally. In terms of child mental health, um, uh, there are particular challenges here because uh, we know that certainly in the UK um, there is not enough funding to meet need and so any talk about there not being, uh, that, that the answer is not just more healthcare professionals, the danger is people think you're therefore saying we don't need more healthcare professionals and we're very clear we do need more healthcare professionals but what we're saying is that's not the only answer and there are other things that are really crucial. Similarly, when we say that clinical evidence is not the only thing to determine um, interventions, it's saying that the research is limited and focused on uh, particular methods of delivery and that we need more uh, research and consideration of other more community-based initiatives which are emerging and looking very interesting. And, uh, and I think that links then to the third uh, issue, which is uh, an increased focus on how communities can develop uh, resilience building initiatives that can really support young people, not just to overcome difficulties, but also to live with and manage ongoing difficulties, if that is the case. Yeah, it's really interesting. Now, as you go through the article, which um, is available online, the it's interesting how this area of child and mental health seems to... S- 
lend itself so well to to the challenges that that you describe um and we could pick we could pick any of them to go into into detail on but one of the ones that really struck me was the idea that um that you have sort of lots of sectors working together and i was just interested uh, amy perhaps i can ask you about what what would that look like in in child and mental health is that it's not just healthcare that would deliver a service and it's certainly not just doctors um can you elaborate on that for us yeah so um a lot of children young people who use mental health services have the experience that they're being sent away to be sick and and actually that's not something that camps is able to do um it's not something that camps should be doing um i think that the really important thing is that children are supported but also that their community can be supported um because young people do tell us that actually they need um others around them to be able to know the right things to do and we hear some horrible stories about things that have happened in in schools and also some brilliant ones um and those things can be really helpful um, because the child doesn't recover in an isolated environment. Um, and then it's also about taking healthcare out of um, out of the hands of only healthcare providers allows us to provide more early intervention, which is something that we know is really lacking in in child mental health in the UK. Yeah, I mean, one of the other things that you talk about is how a lot of the current provision is not really focused on mental health treatment at all. There's a lot of risk assessment and risk response that goes on as well. How do you think it should look? And I don't know, Claire, if this is something you can come in on or perhaps anyone who who wants to talk about this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's amazing reading this article. It's so in line with what we're delivering at PAUSE. I work as a youth worker for Birmingham Children's Mental Health Services and about three years ago these went out to tender and the old, what was previously CAMS um, was redeveloped into a new service called Forward Thinking Birmingham and this service was developed by young people from the very start so there were participation groups long before the service launched who fed back um, about their personal experiences of mental health support um, through CAMS in the past and they fed back their positive experiences and their, you know, their maybe potentially more negative experiences. And they were a real driving force in creating this new service. Um, there's a few things that make Forward Thinking Birmingham quite so unique, um, which is that it's now providing support for 0 to 25 year olds, which overcomes the transition age 16 into adult mental health services, which young people fed back was just so problematic um, if they were in the middle of therapy and then had to be transferred into adult services. The other thing that we've that we have here in Forward Thinking Birmingham is that we have a self referral form, so it's no longer necessary just for um, a GP or a practitioner to refer someone into mental health support. It can be done by parents, carers. It can be done by a young person themselves, or indeed by schools and teachers. So it, it's making it easier to access support and to get that referral in. And then the other thing that we've developed here in Birmingham, which is the project I'm working for is that we have developed a very unique drop-in service for 0 to 25 year olds called Pause, which is where I work as a youth worker. Again, the project was totally designed by young people. Um, they were participation groups, like I said, years before any of this was known to the public. And we've created an amazing space, which is open. We've got some therapy rooms. Young people don't tend to want to use them. 
Um, but the whole idea is that it overcomes the wait list for mental health support and we can support lower level um, young young people with potentially lower level um, needs, which previously might not have been supported by the healthcare system at the moment due to not meeting the thresholds that people, you know, that we hear discussed at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I think Paul really has a role in this article in that I like to think, or I can definitely see, that we're already really addressing some of the things that have been brought up. And I would love to think that, that more pauses could be rolled out across the country, really. That sounds great. And it definitely sounds like you're embodying embodying um, what's what's in the article. Um, another thing that you describe in the article is that um, is around the existing evidence base um, and treatment. Um, and you talk about how clinical evidence is not enough to determine best treatment. Um, Miranda, perhaps you can talk about how that is an issue in child and youth mental health. Yes, so I mean, I guess it's an issue on a number of levels. The first is that we simply don't have enough evidence yet, and um, there is a desperate need for more research and focus in this area, and in particular to look at the evidence base for a, a wider range of interventions, expanding a bit the way that both Claire and Amy have been identifying into a whole range of um, things that could potentially be therapeutic that we haven't really investigated the, rigorously in the way that we have some of the more traditional modalities. But even with the more traditional uh, focus, we um, lack an evidence base for many of the, the complexity of issues coming into services. So we did a recent analysis where we looked at the sort of young people accessing services currently and how many of them uh, using clinician reports could easily be assigned to being treated by uh, evidence-based guidelines such as that developed by National Institute of Clinical Health and Excellence. And we found just under half of uh, the young people accessing services could readily be assigned to um, treatment guided by any one nice guideline. That was partly because uh, sometimes people had multiple problems where it wasn't clear where you'd assign, or sometimes because the nature of the difficulties didn't fit neatly into um, uh, the categories, the diagnostic categories that NICE has traditionally used in, their, um, in giving evidence-based advice. Okay. And in this setting, it's particularly important or particular priorities you talk about in the paper to help support shared decision making. Um, and, and Amy, I know you've done a lot of work into seeking um, the views of, of children and young people affected, affected by this. What, what, how do you think that would um, change services or how should services be delivered with that in mind? So children and young people don't fit into the boxes that we try to make for them a lot of the time. Um, and I think where there is clinical evidence that that is a really important thing for children and young people to know. But actually, we, we can assume as adults that that's going to be the only factor in their decision. And they might have all sorts of other really valid factors in their decision. Or they might have just one one con to having a particular treatment that outweighs all the millions of pros. Um, and actually we need to respect that. Um, and when we, we when we talk about this in physical health, we say you have to remember that it's the child's body. And I think that stands in mental health. You have to remember that it's the child's mind. Um, and I think it working in a shared decision-making model um, allows the child to see that they are able to make decisions and they're able to make really sensible decisions. So that when they hit 18 and if they move on to adult services um, they're expected to make 
decisions for themselves. They know what the process is. One of the things that I think uh, is it has been a sort of um, interesting for clinicians when they're, they're using a more shared decision-making approach is that I think sometimes they've been surprised how young people and families make choices about using less resource rather than more. Um, and I think that isn't the reason for introducing shared decision-making, but it does seem to sometimes lead to more uh, clarity around people choosing that this may not be for them at this moment, rather than being offered things that they then don't attend or, or treat as dropouts from. Yeah. And, and similarly, when they started talking with people more, more openly about the limits of treatment, they've been sort of surprised at how people sometimes are relieved to say, well, this has worked as much as it's going to be for me, I'm now stopping, rather than feeling that they're a failure for something not having worked when they mm. thought it worked for everyone else. And what, um, I know in the paper you talk about some of the tools that you've developed or that others have developed to help support this. Can you talk a little bit about those? So, so we have a, a range of tools that, we're, that we and other colleagues are involved in developing, um, some online and some on paper. So one example is, is um, an app called Power Up that's been developed as part of an IHR grant and currently being trialled as part of a feasibility trial for a randomised control trial, which really um, helps uh, young people uh, bring into their relationship with um, therapists and others, what's important to them and helps them control what information is given, how that information is given, and also helps that gives them tools to actually help weight decisions, exactly as Amy was describing, where they can actually sort of weigh up pros and cons, but then make decisions that may be not in any way automated, but um, helps them sort of keep a register of how they've come to that decision and able to modify it in, in time. All of these um, initiatives that you're describing sound intuitively like they would have a great impact and be very valuable to the children and young people accessing your services. Um, how how do you think you can measure the outcome of these interventions or, or has there been any measurement so far? So I guess I'd want to be really um, upfront about the fact that there is a need for much greater research. So some of these are ideas waiting to be tested. I would not want to say they are evidence-based interventions as yet um, and we are completely committed to the idea of um, assessing impact. The way that, that we've been able to, I, I chair a, a collaboration of child mental health providers and including schools and others called the Child Outcomes Research Consortium Cork and we pioneered their ways of using um, patient report both young people and um, uh, uh, their parents and carers giving views on how they're feeling in terms of, say, symptoms or well-being or whether they're achieving their goals in life and using those as metrics to review progress and then trying to see how that compares across services or across the published literature or uh, where possible, in, obviously, in, in controlled settings to try and understand potential impact of services using um, the lived experiences of young people and uh, carers. Okay, great. And... Um... Claire, just to bring you in, I mean, is there is there much measurement or evaluation that goes on at pause? Yeah, I think it's really interesting that this is this is part, you know, this is formed part of the article because it is one of the things that we as a service are aware that we're not doing enough of. And that is because we're a drop in service. Some young people access our service once and then they never come back. They've got what they needed. Other young people will just access us as and when they fancy. So as you can imagine, it's really difficult for us to to provide, um, you know, to work out a way of assessing the impact we're having on these young people. 
We currently have somebody in at the moment who is carrying out a bit of a, an evaluation of the service, and they are hoping to, to work through some of the ways that we can possibly start carrying out greater evaluation of the impact of the service. Um, I think the way that we know we are doing a fantastic job is because people tell us, young people tell us. That seems like a good place to wrap up. Um, thanks to Miranda Wolpert, Amy Feltham and Claire Rowland. You can read more on the principles and the services we've discussed in the article High Integrity Mental Health Services for Children, Focusing on the Person, Not the Problem, which is now available on bmj.com. We'll be covering more examples of high integrity healthcare in the podcast, so subscribe to us on iTunes so you don't miss out. You can also find the previous podcast explaining more about the vision for high integrity healthcare in our archive on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.